Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Nora. Well, just a few weeks ago, we finished a series on missions where we talked about God's plan uh, to redeem the spiritual people from among all nations. We talked about his plan uh, to rescue sinful people like us out of this world, in effect, and into his heavenly kingdom by the power of the gospel. Uh, then this week, we all watched as the Taliban took over Afghanistan. Uh, just a few days uh, after we, we began our withdrawal. Now, of course, there's plenty of debate about what this will mean for us and how it will impact our nation. Certainly, uh, we should be thinking and praying toward that end, for, for, certainly for safety. But in light of that missions series, before we get to the sermon today, I, I want to lead us in praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Uh, for Christians, whether they are missionaries there uh, or native Christians who are part of churches there in Afghanistan whose lives have been flipped upside down. They are in grave danger of persecution. Uh, this week, we will be sharing a blog post with you from Nine Marks, which is a great ministry in Washington, D.C., that includes some specific prayer requests from pastors and missionaries there in Afghanistan. Uh, I want to encourage us in just a minute together and also in the weeks ahead uh, to be praying for these brothers and sisters uh, who are now stuck in what seems to be the most dangerous, raging nation on earth. Uh, in addition to praying this morning, we're also going to send uh, a link to give 
through a ministry called Send Relief, which is a ministry of the convention that we're a part of. They have started a fund for Afghan refugees who are fleeing persecution. Uh, And their website explains here, as refugees flee persecution and resettle in communities around the globe, Send Relief can connect you and your church with opportunities to give, to pray, to volunteer, to support our cause. And it says, your gifts uh, to the Afghan ref, uh, Afghanistan Refugee Crisis Fund will provide welcome kits to these refugees, uh, ESL classes, job interview prep, and, and more. And so uh, we'll send out those links in the next day or two. Uh, let's do the best we can to pray and to give to that end. In the meantime, let's, let's pray together now, if you would join me. Father, we thank you that even in dark situations such as these, your risen son, is seated on the throne of heaven. God, we thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given rightfully to him. We thank you that all of us who trust in him get to share in his eternal resurrected life. What what a comfort the good news of your kingdom is to us, especially when the nations rage. Be with our brothers and sisters there in Afghanistan. Comfort and provide for them. Help them even now to rest in the hope of your salvation. Use us in whatever ways we can to to glorify your name even through this crisis. And be with us now also, we pray, as we look together to your word in the book of Philemon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all remember uh, some of our earliest jobs. Um, some are more glamorous than others. Um, for me, one of my earliest jobs, uh, early college even, was, was a valet, a va- parking cars uh, at events around town. Now, a couple things you need to know about valet. Uh, if there's a valet at your event, it's probably a pretty fancy event. They don't just do valet anywhere, like at the coffee shop you go to in the week or at the state fair. And like, you're not going to find valet there. Um, they do valet at the Fister. Uh, They do valet at the big galas at Discovery World. And for that reason, the point of doing valet, at least in part, is to make the people who use it feel important, right? There's something sort of empowering about handing someone the keys to your car and saying, here, park this, (laughs) right? Something empowering about that. But I've noticed that this whole power dynamic really changed the way that people treated me as a valet. For some reason, people who seemed like they could be peers, to me at least, people who seemed like I could easily befriend and get along with in everyday life, for some reason, they just like didn't want to have small talk with me, right? I'd ask them, hey, how's your day going? They'd say, fine, right? Look at their phones. Or they'd just be overtly rude and really impatient, especially, by the way, if you made a mistake, Especially if you brought them the wrong cars, really embarrassing. Uh, especially if you took too long. God forbid you might have to explain that new scratch on the side of their car, right? It didn't go well. But I couldn't help but thinking as a valet, you know, if I weren't getting paid 12 bucks an hour plus tips to park your car for you, I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if you might be a little nicer to me, Right? Um, part of what makes people feel important sometimes when they use valet is that someone is being paid, often far less than they are, to do something for them that they could easily do for themselves. And this is really changes sort of the social dynamic. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, often enough, 
when certain people use valet, they don't feel obligated even to be kind to the valet. In some ways, by treating them poorly, it's, it's almost as if it's self-validating in a way. It's almost as if it's proof. Right? This, this kid parking my car, he is, he is not my peer. He is my servant, right? He's my servant. As we saw last week, Paul's letter to Philemon is somewhat about uh, this kind of a social tension, if you will, obviously much more amplified but similar, between a servant with a low social status and a master with a much higher social status. Paul wrote this letter to a man named Philemon asking him to receive a man named Onesimus who used to be his bondservant, but we can tell from the letter there must have been some sort of a conflict with them. Based on what we read, it seems as though chances are Onesimus may have stolen from Philemon and just sort of ran off. But then the apostle Paul met this bondservant. He met Onesimus. He led him to faith in Christ. And now with this letter, he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon so that the two of them can be reconciled. Now, that Onesimus is a Christian. But it's obvious throughout this letter that Paul does not expect this to be easy for Philemon. In many ways, that's the point of the letter. That's why it needed to be written, was to help Philemon to work through all of this, which I think kind of reveals the purpose of the letter for us, in a way. I think this letter is meant to pose an interesting question to us, and that is, what if we don't feel like receiving a lesser Christian as our brother? Uh, what, what if they don't seem important enough for us to love in this way? What if they've wronged us even, and it just feels much more natural and intuitive to write them off, to forget that they even exist, pretend that they don't? It's worth considering before we get started today, who is our estranged servant, if you will, right? Who is the equivalent to Onesimus for us? Uh, none of us have a bondservant or a slave, of course, so is this, is this letter then just completely irrelevant to us? I don't think it is, no. I think this could be any Christian who has a lower social status than us, and especially those who have wronged us maybe in some way, even in spite of that lower status, someone we might be expected to have a grudge against. Basically, we're talking about the kind of Christians that Christians like us are not expected to see as a peer or as an equal or as a sibling. Um, Christian refugees from Afghanistan come to mind this week in particular. Uh, but also, if you're an employer of some sort, if you oversee people at work, it could be that Christian employee who's sort of at the bottom of the org chart, and if you're perfectly honest, you kind of hope they stay at the bottom of the org chart. I'm talking about that person. Uh, or if, if you are an affluent professional at, the, at sort of the top of your field, this may be a Christian who lives in poverty or, or even just has an average blue-collar job. They don't have the power, the influence uh, culturally and and otherwise, as you do, uh, as white people in a historically white nation with a very complex history of race, this could impact the way that we think and view black Christians or black churches. 
What we're talking about here is Christians that we are tempted for one reason or another not to love because we seem to think that in a social sense, in a cultural sense, we're more important than them. We have more power, more influence than them. Now, you might be wondering, what about unbelievers, right? Aren't we supposed to love them as well? Doesn't this have to do with that? And of course, the answer to that is yes, we are. That's just not what this letter is about. Uh, This letter is about how the gospel changes our relationship with fellow Christians that we do not feel like loving as fellow Christians. It's about how our shared faith in Christ can turn even a servant into a brother. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the body and conclusion of this letter in three parts today. Uh, And then after we've walked through it, we'll spend some time applying it together and considering what does this mean for us. But first, what Paul presents Philemon with is a very awkward opportunity. And if you were to sum up this very awkward opportunity in one sentence, it's this. He says to Philemon, I'm sending your servant back to you. And this somehow is supposed to be an opportunity for him, right? So let's take a look. We see this opportunity the most clearly in verse 12 where he just says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, he says. And so we we get the sense that Paul is not neutral here in his feelings toward Onesimus. He describes Onesimus as his heart. And, And throughout this letter, he's kind of talking up this opportunity as if this is a really great opportunity for Philemon, but there's this tension that also runs throughout the letter, and it's that Paul also clearly knows that Philemon likely will not see this as a great opportunity. We can see that dynamic in the way he prefaces the letter, actually, right away there in verse 8. Paul basically says, look, I could easily command you to do this, right? I'm bold enough to require this. Um, Yet, he says in verse 9, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, you don't say that to someone unless you're expecting what you're about to say to be very hard for them to hear, right? Uh, Paul wants Philemon to know before he even gets into the details here, listen, I could have been much more strong with you in this letter than I'm about to be. (laughs) But it is, he says, for love's sake that he's chosen to be more gentle, to make this a request. Now, just to be clear, what he does not mean when he says that is I'm being more gentle with you here. I'm making this a request because I love you. That's not what he means by that, actually. No, he's saying, I, if I made you do this, he's saying, you wouldn't have the opportunity to do it for love's sake sake. So one scholar puts it this way really helpfully. Doug Moo says, uh, obeying a command may be onerous, but it is rather straightforward. It can be accomplished grudgingly, right? If someone commands you to do something, you can kind of just roll your eyes and do it. But Paul puts the ball into Philemon's court. He says he is, in effect, testing the depths of Philemon's love and the extent of his understanding even of Christian fellowship. And then he continues He says, he, Philemon, must not only do what Paul wants him to do. He must do it for the right reasons. You see this? Paul is giving Philemon the opportunity to love Onesimus for the right reasons, for the sake of love, not by compulsion. 
But we can also see just how awkward this opportunity would be uh, for Philemon, even in the way that Paul describes his relationship with Onesimus. Now, look with me at verse 11. He says, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Then he adds in verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now listen, that's awkward. Can you feel the tension in what he's written there? This is really awkward. He's basically saying, hey, you know that servant who ran away from you? The one you think is totally useless? Met him. I met him. Led him to faith in the Lord. He's fantastic. He's fantastic. Super helpful. Wish he could be my servant. Right? So awkward. And to add to the awkwardness, some scholars uh, are convinced that the fact that Paul says, I would be glad for him to serve me on your behalf, this may be a hint. This may mean that Onesimus did, in fact, actually just run away. So their agreement had not legally ended. Therefore, Philemon still had a legal right to Onesimus as his servant. And this more than likely is why Paul felt the need to write this letter. He's basically writing this letter to say, look, I don't want you to think I've stolen your servant. Okay? Can you guys just work this out? (laughs) That is the heart behind this. It's an opportunity. Look with me at verse 15. He says, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while. In, In other words, he says, maybe God's doing something here. Right? Maybe there's an opportunity here that we need to be wise to. And here's the real opportunity, he continues, that you might have him back forever. Forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, he says. As a beloved brother. And he adds, especially to me. In other words, he's saying, he's definitely my brother. I know that. I led him to the Lord. Definitely my brother. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? See, to be a bondservant in these days was basically to be purchased into a household. A bondservant's life was linked to the life of his master and his family, almost as if, in the best circumstances, they were part of the family. So in other words, Paul's saying, look, the fact that Onesimus used to be your bondservant, and still technically is, should make this an even more exciting opportunity for you. What a blessing this is. Look what the gospel has done. Even with everything you've been through, you get to be brothers with Onesimus in more ways than one. What an opportunity this is. But we can, see, we can see for many reasons this is an awkward opportunity for Philemon. It is great news in a spiritual sense. And I'm sure Philemon would even say this, right? His former servant who did not know Christ now does. Right? But their relationship is so complicated that this opportunity is going to be pretty awkward. If he's going to see this as a good thing, Paul's really going to have to help him see this as a good thing, which is exactly what he does next. In part two, uh, Paul presents Philemon with a very personal request. If you want to kind of distill that down to one sentence, their request is, receive him 
as you would receive me. Starting in verse 17, Paul basically leverages his relationship with Philemon. He puts the whole thing on the table in order to persuade Philemon to receive Onesimus. Every step of the way in this section, Paul makes this personal. So he says in verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And he even says, listen, if there's any barriers to that, if he owes you anything, I'll take care of that, right? Don't worry about that. Again, it makes it personal. Look with me at verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand personally, right? I will repay it. And then he adds, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Now, most scholars agree uh, that this is Paul referencing the fact that he has led Philemon to faith in Christ. He's basically saying, listen, please listen to me. Please receive Onesimus as your brother. Because remember, uh, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be a part of this spiritual family either. Don't forget that, right? Yes, brother, he says, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. You see what Paul's doing here? He is making this personal. He's saying, look, I'm not going to make you do this, even though I could, by the way. Right? But I'm not going to make you do this. But if you love me, you will. Paul is personalizing his request. He is inserting himself into this conflict. And all of this is meant to have this effect of, of making it very hard <laughs> for Philemon to ignore him, right? Uh, you might say in more modern terms, Paul is putting pressure on Philemon. And we see this pressure increasing yet again in the next section, the conclusion to the letter, we see a very loaded farewell. So again, first, we saw a very awkward opportunity, then we've seen a very personal request, and now we see a very loaded farewell. If you want to summarize it in one sentence, he basically says, Thanks so much, brother. See you soon. Okay, and you'll see what I mean by that as we go. If you look at verse 21, Paul says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. In other words, again, he's saying, look, I'm not going to force you to do this, but you will. I'm not going to force you to do this. It's, like, it's kind of like your mom calling you, saying, hey, no pressure. I'm so excited that you're going to your cousin's wedding on the other side of the country next year. I'm so excited. It's like, hey, mom, I, we haven't actually decided that yet. Oh, no, no, no. I, I know, I know, I know. And I'm not trying to control you at all, not at all, right? I'm just so excited you'll be there. I can't imagine what the pictures would be like without you, right? It's like, okay, for some reason... I'm starting to feel like I don't have much of a choice, right? These are loaded words. I am confident, brother, of your obedience. I know you'll do more than I ask, right? He's applying pressure. And then just in case Philemon is still trying to wrestle with this, just in case he's still tempted not to do this, Paul says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. In other words, just in case you're still wrestling with this, get that bed ready for me. Because I'm going to come and pay you a visit. 
These are loaded words. And these loaded words even add a whole new dimension to Paul's final greeting in verse 23. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and uh, Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, at first you might read that and you think, well, there's not really anything to it. Paul says stuff like that all the time in his letters. But in light of the context here, (laughs) what he's basically saying is, oh, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, I told these other brothers that I'm writing you this letter. They're up to speed. Uh, They told me to say, hello, right? You see what Paul's doing here? He, He doesn't want to force Philemon to receive Onesimus, but he does do just about everything else he can short of requiring him in order to influence his decision. Now, on one hand, this shows us, obviously, that Paul knew that this would be very tough for Philemon. He knew that he would not feel like receiving Onesimus because sometimes the truth is it costs us something. Even if it's just our pride, it costs us something to love a fellow Christian, some of them, as brothers. Sometimes we don't feel like it. But more importantly, this also shows us that when we don't feel like loving a servant as a brother, our hearts need to be changed. This is our big idea for the whole sermon. When we don't feel like loving the lesser Christian as a brother, as an equal, something needs to change. It's not the circumstance. (laughs) It's not other people's expectation of us. No, it is our hearts that need to change. This is why Paul wrote the letter. He knew how hard it would be to do this in an earthly sense, but he knew how powerful it would be to do this in a spiritual sense. Our hearts need to be changed so that we can love our servant as a beloved brother. This is what we see as we look at our passage. I just want to consider now for the rest of our time, what does this mean for us? And in particular, what I want to do is to share three reasons for us to change our hearts. Three reasons for us to change our hearts and start loving our servant as a brother. I want you to think of who your servant is. We talked about in the beginning of the service. Who is that lesser Christian that you're tempted not to love because you just don't feel like it? Uh, And and what are those reasons that you have that make you struggle to love them as a brother or sister? I want you to call that to mind right now, that person, that circumstance, that category, that situation. And now I want to try, like Paul does with Philemon, to persuade us to change our hearts. There are three things I think we need to see that would persuade us. The first one is this. It's pretty simple. We are required. (laughs) To love them as a brother. So just before we waste any time trying to use our mental energy to figure out if we have a choice in this, and this is something, right, maybe we can keep going and we don't have to. That's not the case. We are required. Now, throughout this letter, Paul refuses to require Philemon's obedience, right? He stops short of requiring it, but he makes it crystal clear. This is a matter of obedience. So he says, I'm confident of your obedience. In other words, to not do this, to not receive Onesimus as a brother, is not just kind of mean. It is to disobey God. Paul may not be forcing his hand here, but God very much expects and requires us 
to love all brothers and sisters. Because like any good father, God insists that his children love one another. That is not optional in the family any more than it would be optional in any of our families. It's required. He requires us to love our brothers and sisters of him regardless of their social status in relation to us. Uh, even if they've wronged us, he requires it. I think we miss this often in our very individualistic age. We miss this, that God does make certain demands on our lives. We saw this in our series in 1 John. In, in chapter 4 of 1 John, the author writes this. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you see the connection here between our love for the brothers we can see and our love for God we cannot see? We cannot say we have this love unless we have this love. If we try to, we're lying, he says. And this commandment we have from him, that is Christ, he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He must, right, by rejecting even our most lowly brothers and sisters in Christ, we are setting ourselves at odds with God the Father. And we may be even proving that we are not actually Christians. It's really interesting. Uh, those who study the relationship between Christianity and slavery uh, usually are drawn to Philemon uh, because some have argued throughout history that the Bible allows for slavery, and those who do make that argument often point to this letter. And they say, see, look, slavery is just because Paul doesn't require Philemon to free Onesimus. He doesn't require it. Now, there are problems with this comparison to begin with. I want to be very clear about this because this kind of servitude we're reading of in the first century Greco-Roman world was not based on race or ethnicity. Some very important differences. Uh, people often entered into it willingly because in the absence of social programs and, and uh, welfare, this is one of the only ways to escape poverty. And so without question, this is very different than the kind of slavery that stains our nation's history. It doesn't mean it was all squeaky clean, but there were some very important differences. These servants were not captured against their will and dragged to the other side of the world for the sake of forced labor at, the, at penalty of death. The idea that professing Christians used this letter to justify that is downright evil. On top of that, actually, it's, it's also incredibly, profoundly ignorant because anyone with a third-grade reading level who reads this one-page letter can see crystal clearly that's not at all what Paul is trying to say here. This mark on our history is not a little stain. Right? It is an atrocity of the highest magnitude. Uh, and we should not underestimate that. We can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the relationship we describe in this letter, because of what this letter says about how the gospel can turn a servant even into a brother. And yet, there is something that we have to grapple with here as Christians. Uh, there is something here that modern critics of Christianity love to point out, and that is that this letter does not openly condemn this kind of servitude. It doesn't. It, it does not require Christians to free their bondservants as a matter of principle. Uh, it does not insist that they go and lobby their government uh, 
to work toward the liberation of oppressed peoples. It does not do that. And that is because it goes far beyond that. It goes far beyond that. This does not just demand that we protest. This does not just demand that we change the system. We've seen firsthand, even when our system changes, it does not mean that our sin just goes away. Instead, this letter suggests that if we are truly in Christ, we, personally, we will stop seeing anyone as spiritually inferior to us. Anyone. Even if the world tells us that we have a right to them as property. This goes far beyond the emancipation of slavery in the Roman Empire. It goes far beyond that. This letter does not condemn slavery among the raging nations because this letter is not written to or about the raging nations. This letter is written to and for the church of Jesus Christ who has been entrusted with the keys to his kingdom in heaven among all nations. So we have to see this church in this letter even. We can see that the fellowship of Christ's blood-bought church is God's solution to slavery. It is God's solution to slavery. He is washing sinners clean by the blood of his son, and he is gathering us, as we've read, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, into one family as siblings in Christ. This family is required is required by the authority of King Jesus to love one another as brothers and sisters. Why? Because he so loved us. This is why we should pray and work to become a multi-ethnic church made up of people from every type of social strata. Absolutely, we should. This is God's plan to rid the world of sin, to overcome the raging nations. This is his solution to end the evils of slavery and many other countless evils. And so, for that reason, if we say, hmm, I don't know if I need to love that brother, we are setting ourselves at odds with God. God, God does not ask us our permission. Who do you think I should redeem? Who do you think I should include? in the, Oh, not him? <laughs> no, he doesn't ask us our permission. He is not, frankly, concerned with how we feel about it. Because when we feel unsettled by this, which makes sense and we often do, it is our heart that needs to change. It is not his plan. He requires us to love every brother and sister, regardless of how useless we may think they are, but thankfully, here's another reason for us to change our hearts and to start loving our quote-unquote servants as brothers. It's because, number two, they are far from useless. They are far from useless. Philemon saw Onesimus as useless because he only viewed him through the eyes of a master. In the eyes of the flesh, this world, he didn't view him in a spiritual sense. Meanwhile, Paul saw him as incredibly useful. Why? Because he saw him through the eyes of a brother. See, the truth is, if people's social status is the primary filter that we use to determine whether or not we should love them in this way, then we will never see the good in loving a servant as our brother or sister. We won't want 
a church full of valets, right? We won't want a church full of immigrants or refugees, for example. We won't want a church full of our servants who have a lower social status than we do. We won't see any use for a church like that even. We'll want a church full of powerful, influential people who kind of look and live exactly like us, who, who benefit us and make us look better, right? But, but the gospel has a way of rewiring our hearts, you see, so that we can see the good in loving people with a far lower social status than us, even if they've wronged us. This is the point. If our goal is to make much of ourselves, then we will see everyone as useless in our church until they start making much of us. We won't have a category for loving people when it costs us something, when it's hard, when we don't feel like it. But on the other hand, if our goal is to see God glorified, because of the sin-shattering power of the gospel in all the world, all of a sudden we will see this kind of self-denying love. We will see this kind of sacrificial forgiveness even as an incredibly useful thing. Loving our servants as brothers and sisters, church, it makes much of God. It makes much of the gospel. It, makes a, it sends a message, rather, to this world. Look what the death and resurrection of our King Jesus has done, right? If this is our goal, ultimately, as a church, if that is what we want, we will see those who are our servants as very useful to that end. I want you to try to envision our church in five years from now, about two and a half years into planting almost three years old. Imagine us in five more years. Uh, who else will be here? Uh, who will worship with us on a regular basis? Uh, what if in five years this church is filled with people who you can't even imagine loving right now? Not in the same way that you love your fellow current brothers and sisters. What if we worship with a, with a big group of, of immigrants or, or Afghanistan refugees who come here in the next couple weeks, for example? If that were to happen, I think all of us, myself included, would, would need a change of heart in some way. It's hard even to say exactly how, but that would stretch us. Let's just be honest. Um, we would need to humble ourselves. We would need to love when we don't feel like it, when it's very uncomfortable to, when it costs us our pride. Uh, we may even need to, to forgive some along the way. But as hard as that it may be, it would not be without purpose. And here's why. Because these brothers and sisters are far from useless. They're far from useless. In fact, loving them is a priceless opportunity to put the glory of the gospel on display. And so let's pray that God would change our hearts to help us see it in this way. But again, we have to be honest about this. Um, I want to admit, absolutely, it is often very hard to see it in this way. It really is. Uh, which is why we need another reason to change our hearts and to love our servants as brothers. Number three, we should do this because our brothers and sisters are expecting us to. 
Paul told them about the letter, they're up to speed. Uh, he included his whole church in the greeting, they know now, right? Our brothers and sisters are expecting us to. It's hard to read this letter without thinking, man, they had a totally different perspective on what it means to be a part of a local church back then, right? A totally different. We are not used to brothers and sisters expecting us to love like this. Just consider what Paul's doing here, okay? He is inserting himself into a conflict he's not been asked to be a part of. <laughs> he is openly challenging Philemon to do the right thing, very much out in the open, even though he knows it's incredibly hard. He is including his entire church and others in the process. He is leveraging his relationship with Philemon in order to pressure him to do the right thing and love Onesimus. He is even promising to come and visit, you know, just to check up, just to make sure that he follows through on this. Now, these days, it is rare for Christians to even work through a conflict with someone and stay in the same church. It is rare. These days, we'll leave church for any reason. If we don't have a reason at all, we just say, you know, I wasn't feeling connected. Too often, we don't value this kind of accountability. We, we run from this kind of accountability. In many ways, we don't even have a category for it. Too often, we don't expect very much, really, of one another. Now, just imagine how most modern Christians would respond if they got an email like this, right? <laughs> They're probably not going to feel very connected at their church after they get this email. It's hard to imagine Philemon would have felt connected at his church after he got this letter. If it had been an option for him to leave that church, to go be anonymous at some feel-good megachurch in town, I imagine that probably would have been very tempting for Philemon after he got this. Wait a second. Keep sort of identifying as a Christian, but also hating Onesimus and not have anybody ask me about it? Y yeah, right? Let's do that. Let's do it that way. That's far easier. But what I want us to see is that our loving fellowship within a church like ours is meant to keep us from being anonymous in that way. And that serves a purpose in our spiritual lives. There's a function to that. This kind of accountability and fellowship is meant to motivate us toward this kind of love that we probably will not see in and of ourselves. We need help to see it because in theory, at least, we shouldn't be able to hate our brother and go on being in good terms with the rest of the family. That's on purpose. You see that on full display in this letter. The whole point of this letter is to help Philemon see that if he does not receive Onesimus as his brother, he won't feel connected in the family of God. He should not feel connected in the family of God because he is rejecting one of the siblings, right? And the truth is, all of us need that. All of us need that. We need real brothers and sisters who actually expect us to love in this way, even when we don't feel like it. In fact, precisely when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel like it. So look, I would say don't join a church to prove that you are a morally upright person. Don't do that. Join a church because you're not. 
join a church, sorry, we should join a church because we desperately need the grace of King Jesus to change our hearts. We know this. We also need brothers and sisters, real people who know us enough to write us this letter to help us change our hearts when we do not feel like changing our hearts. See, before long, a churchless Christian will become a loveless Christian because they could just go on hating their servants. They can avoid them at all costs. They can even bash them on Facebook, and no one will write them this email. No one. Because no one is actually expecting them to love their brother in this way. They, they haven't told anyone they would love their brother in this way. They're not on the hook for this kind of thing in a practical, tangible way. We need to be church. We need to be on the hook for this kind. This is an important motivation for us that we all need. Look, at a time when our world is being torn apart and no one expects anyone to love in this way, uh, let's be the kind of church that does. Uh, let's be the kind of church that expects one another to love every member as a brother or sister, regardless of their status outside of the church, regardless of hurt feelings even along the way, even when we don't feel like it, even when it costs us something, even when it damages our pride. Because sometimes all of us need reminding that we did not deserve to be a part of this family either. And yet, even still, Christ has loved us. He, God's own Son, died so that we can become fellow children of God. And, and so who are we, church? Who are we to deny our brother? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we just fall before you, God, in hearing this today, it is something I think, if we are honest, we all can relate to. The challenge of loving when there are all kinds of barriers that our sin prevents us from loving them. God, we need you. First, we need your grace and mercy. We thank you that you've included us in this family. Uh, we also need one another to see the goodness of loving in this way. We desperately need one another. And we need the faith and endurance to love when the gospel seems like the only reason to love. Thankfully, God, we praise you that you have given us the gospel. You have given us the ultimate, the greatest reason to love by sending your son Jesus to bear the weight of our sins, to crush our sins, to rise again in victory and to give us his eternal life, that we would share in his inheritance. What a joy, what a privilege, and what a powerful way to demonstrate the gospel by loving even our quote-unquote servants as brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.